Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. We are here with Dr. Michael Ezra, Professor of American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University and the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Civil and Human Rights. Uh, Professor Ezra, Michael, thank you for coming. Uh, Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I want to talk to you today about a lot of things, but certainly your role as Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Civil and Human Rights. Um, You've also edited a book, uh, The Economic Civil Rights Movement, African Americans and the Struggle for Economic Power. And what's interesting is that right now, this year is the 400th anniversary of 1619 and Jamestown. And when we think about the civil rights movement, uh, this idea of black citizenship and the freedom struggle, uh, in a lot of ways, this year is the year that people like Malcolm X used to say, 400 years of racial oppression in the United States. And the, the idea of the civil rights movement was to try to transform Um, citizenship, uh, try to transform American democracy. And I want to ask you about the the historiography of the civil rights movement and how it's currently being sort of expanded and innovated by really a plethora of new scholars. I mean, on some levels, there's a lot of intersectionality we're seeing. On some levels, um, um, people are talking about structures. Um, On other levels, people are bringing in the environment, um, feminism, uh, mental health issues, LGBTQ issues. So I want to start with that general. What, what do you see in terms of some of the new cutting edge directions that civil rights historiography is going into? And really the at the local, regional, national, but global level too, because the journal you edit is global. Yes, I think the, the key development that we're seeing in the literature right now has to do with internationalism. You see people connecting the U.S. freedom struggle to other struggles worldwide, and not really in terms of just making analogies between the two, but actually seeing how certain key actors um, internationally built coalitions between freedom struggles in different countries. Uh, So a lot of the civil rights historiography is kind of going back and retelling the story that previous scholars told, but in a more complex way that kind of fills in not only the international dimensions, but what you said before, the intersectional dimensions. We're seeing a lot of work now on sexuality and gender in particular and feminism in particular. Uh, Kind of a male-dominated version of the civil rights movement is now being uh, redone and taking into account, you know, more people who were hidden in the history originally. And when you think about that male-dominated version, um, certainly people like Malcolm X, Martin Luther King lead that that kind of historiography. Uh, what do you think the impact is of, of sort of this shift or this disruption? Um, and certainly we're thinking a, a whole set of people when we think about the dark end of the street, about, um, you know, situating um, rape at the center of the civil rights movement and uh, bringing it back in terms of chronologically to the 1940s, um, the work of Keisha Blaine, the work of Rhonda Williams. There's all this different work that's centering um, black women as organizers, as activists, as interlocutors. Um, What do you think the impact is? I think uh, the key will be when people envision the civil rights movement and the rank and file as women. I think that any freedom struggle in U.S. history has had a women's component to it, and 
that was missing from the literature for quite a while. I think it's going to get people to reflexively think of women as leaders in ways that they haven't before. And I think that'll resonate all the way up to the U.S. presidency, probably. Now, gender is just one of the issues because Jean Theo Harris has the new book out on, you know, um, you know, the, sort of a, a beautiful, difficult struggle. Um, and she really gets into all these different misconceptions that she argues, uh, misconceptions about gender, but also about uh, violence versus nonviolence, misconceptions about how much white support there was for the civil rights movement, uh, misconceptions about local versus national struggles. I want us to tease those things out. As editor, what are you seeing in terms of even both what you're publishing, um, books that are being reviewed? What's on the cutting edge when we think about civil and human rights? Because on some levels, even how are we conceptualizing that? Because I want us to talk about Jackie Dowd Hall and the long civil rights movement, Nick Hill Singh and, and Black is a Country, and he talked about a long civil rights era. My own work has talked about a long black power movement. Um, Kamozi Woodard has talked about a long black freedom struggle with Jean Theo Harris. Sundiata Chijwa has talked about, um, um, crit critiqued the, 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 the long civil rights movement along with Clarence Lang. So how do you conceptualize the civil rights movement? The dimensions, well, the the temporal dimensions that you uh, that you're talking about, I think now can be stretched into the 1980s and 1990s, and I think trying to connect the present to the civil rights movement, I think there still is a disconnect in the scholarship, and that people are trying to, I think, apply civil rights strategies kind of unsuccessfully to the present in in ways that aren't necessarily strategic oversights, but that people don't have the historical texture of understanding what really happened during the civil rights movement in a way that makes it inapplicable to the present. These new histories begin to dig up nuance that suddenly people realize what was happening in the past is also happening in the present that the older histories that are less complex wouldn't reveal to people in the present. When you say that um, these contemporary move movements are trying to utilize that, are you thinking things like March for Our Lives or Women's March, Black Lives Protest Matter? Protest in general, marches in general, and um, try, trying to get definitive answers from government about issues that are more de facto than de jure. Okay. What do you think about, do you think of something like the Moral Mondays movement? What William Barber is trying to do in North Carolina, um, what is it? Nonviolent civil disobedience. When we think about Black Lives Matter, BLM in 2014-15 staged nonviolent demonstrations, but they did civil disobedience. Activists blocked whole highways in Miami, Washington D.C., other places. Sometimes it was very, very effective in terms of getting massive media attention, even leading to some public policy changes. Um, sometimes it hasn't been as as effective. Um, but what do you think? Do these young people, um, are they imbibing sort of a conventional narrative of the civil rights movement and not seeing sort of, you know, underneath sort of the underside of this? So they're not able to sort of apply the right strategies? What are you, what are you saying? Yeah, I, I can't exactly answer the question, but I've been moved by a, a theory by the founder of Occupy Wall Street, Michael White, who talks about the end of protest. 
And Kansas sees protest as a vehicle that takes a lot of energy and gets a lot of attention um, and that usually doesn't lead to policy change. Wow. But what about the civil rights movement in terms of doesn't the movement um, sort of sort of refute that? At least not just the classical, but all the way into the 80s and 90s, like you were mentioning. Yes. And 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 the translation somehow between the past and the present may somehow doesn't seem to be happening in terms of that the gains of the civil rights movement um, remain outstanding, rapid and transformative in a way that it doesn't seem like any movements since have really achieved as much. What about the movement to end mass incarceration in the sense that the president, who's not necessarily a big supporter of black people, um, they just passed uh, and the Congress just passed a bill uh, in December um, that's really at least ratcheting down some aspects at the federal level of mass incarceration. And that was a sort of bipartisan bill, but you had activists like Van Jones and others who were really supportive of that. Now, there was criticism and pushback of that, but certainly that's coming out of um, not just BLM, but coming out of um, a real um, activist uh, movement to sort of transform the carceral state. Angela Davis has been a big part of that. Uh, Michelle Alexander has been a big part of that. And in some levels, they shamed conventional civil rights organization, Urban League, NAACP, into saying we're going to look at black prisoners really for the first time, probably since the 1970s. The last time, except for this recent last five, six, seven years, that as a nation we were looking and even the black community was looking at black people in jail and saying whether they're innocent or guilty, they're human beings who deserve good treatment was really, you know, we're thinking about. Uh, Black Panthers, but also Malcolm X, King, and Angela Davis. You know? Yeah, so um, that's a good point, actually, that the the move to end the carceral state has its roots in, in the Black Power era and the long civil rights movement. And yeah, we, we'll see about the... There are some encouraging changes, but uh, so uh, felons are now being franchised again, but now there are some new laws being passed that says these people have to pay off all of their court fees yeah. before they would get the chance to vote. And I think um, Ibram Kendi's theory about how racism and anti-racism work simultaneously in a country, um, rather than there being some narrative toward progress or some narrative toward anti-progress, they happen at the exact same time. The, the more fierce racism exists, the more fierce anti-racism exists. Anti-racism cannot kill racism, and racism cannot kill anti-racism. They exist simultaneously. And I think you're, you're going to see this with this criminal justice reform. There's going to be some sharks who make a lot of money off of this through the ankle bracelets, through the monitoring systems, in which whole communities get turned into prisons, basically, where people are being monitored and and fined and watched uh, and can't leave their street, basically. Um, we'll see where this reform goes in terms of whether it's a positive change or not. When drug legalization happens, marijuana legalization, it's going to prevent a lot of people of color from being incarcerated for nothing. Um, but who's going to be making the money off of this? Okay. And yeah. this goes back to the economics that you talk about in the economic civil rights movement. I want you to talk about that, this book, um, The Economic Civil Rights Movement, African Americans and the Struggles for Economic Power. What do you mean by the economic civil rights movement? Yeah. Um, 
there's a lot of ways to define racism and boil it down, but I always thought, uh, I always teach it at the end of the day as kind of a, a political or economic imbalance of power along racial lines that's predictable, durable, reliable, you can count on it, and it's usually profitable for somebody, and usually not African Americans. What we wanted to do in this book, though, is figure out how black people resisted that and built up organizations, businesses, institutions that would empower them economically, and then to see, okay, what changes actually occur when individuals or groups get money? How does, how does doing well lead to doing good? In this country. And one of the theories of this book is that in order in the capitalist United States, maybe even in the capitalist white supremacist United States, the only way you can get uh, white people to buy into a narrative of anti-racism is by making it profitable. And so uh, at the end of the day, how would these uh, African-American resistance fights transform not only black people, but white people? And what did you find in terms of specifically when you like who was able to successfully do that? Is that the Urban League? Is uh, it the Congress of Racial Equality? Is it affirmative action well, in one context? A. Philip Randolph. I mean, during World War II, convincing a president um, that 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 the the key to the freedom fight was employment during World War II. That the most democratic thing that Roosevelt could do was you know allow for a non segregated uh, military industry. Essentially, so it's it's individual. Can you remind our listeners how did A. Philip Randolph do that? Ah, uh, yes, A. Philip Randolph uh, threatened to march on Washington well before Martin Luther King did, and uh, A. Philip uh, and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, bought into that idea. He he did not want A. Philip Randolph to lead this grand march to Washington D.C., so he agreed to create the Fair Employment Practices Committee, and that led to a semblance of non-discrimination in the military industry, which was the still is the biggest employer in the United States. Um, so uh, individuals like Leon Sullivan in Philadelphia, uh, we talk about union leaders and the struggles they had to desegregate shop floors. Uh, Ibram Kendi has a piece on Richard Nixon and his stoking of black capitalism. So uh, on the presidential level, individuals, organizations, um, all seeing capitalism sort of as a, as a conduit to freedom. Now, did it work? Because one thing we know in terms of um, Richard Nixon, especially during the first term in the first two years, he talked about black power as black capitalism. But then soon enough, um, people like Arthur Fletcher became, who was his special assistant, uh, black Republican, became very, very disappointed and disillusioned because uh, the Nixon administration received pushback from whites, but also Jewish Americans and others who, Nancy McLean talks about this, other people talk about it, um, who were saying, hey, this is this is not going to be fair to us, and and uh, we need to slow this down. So was it successful? You, you take things like Soul City, North Carolina, you know, an independent black-built town from scratch in the 1970s. And, you know, the town didn't make it, but the idea that that means that the plan to empower people economically was unsuccessful, that's not necessarily a corollary because these things have great symbolic importance. And also some of these institutions are targeted for defeat by their enemies as well or neglect by politicians. So, um, you know, uh, there wasn't sort of this kind of vertical and horizontal economic success that you might see with Garveyism or with the Nation of Islam in which thousands and thousands of people become economically empowered 
through these projects. Um, but at the same time, they send the message to people that economic power is out there to be got and that it can change people's lives. Well, I want to talk to you about um, then reparations in terms of this, you know, this is really a huge, huge topic historically, but also contemporary. You know, we've got David Brooks of the New York Times coming out for reparations. Obviously, Ta-Nehisi Coates in 2014, then writing for The Atlantic, had a major piece on uh, called The Case for Reparations. But there's also the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations and COBRA. Um, Mary Frances Berry has written about Callie House, My Face is Black, My Face is True. Uh, Queen Mother Audley Moore uh, goes from being a communist, socialist, black nationalist, but really a big reparations leader. Uh, James Foreman, um, reparations from the United Church. Um, Randall Robinson, the debt. Um, so, and now, you know, we've got a Democratic presidential primary candidates saying that they're either for it, like Cory Booker, or that they're for H.R. 40, uh, which is John Conyers' bill to study reparations. The congressman out of Michigan who introduced that bill in 1987 could never get funding and ballast for that bill. So I want to talk about reparations um, and not reparations as some individual check to um, African-Americans, but reparations is something structurally that would finally really uh, uh, help transform the imbalance that you talk about in the economic civil rights movement. What do you think? And how fe- how feasible it is? How feasible is it? How would we do it? Ira Katznelson talks about this and when affirmative action was white, where we see specific moments in history, even beyond racial slavery, where there were um, set-asides for whites that black citizens, including veterans, should have gotten but didn't, including um, when we think about FHA, home mortgages, and that's the largest transfer from the state to ordinary citizens in American history is giving people the capacity to buy their own homes and then to, to, to bequeath that generational wealth. That's how the white middle class was created. African-Americans, absolutely, we know empirically, we have the proof, Kenneth Jackson, Crabgrass Frontier, did not get the opportunity. That could be part of it. That could be part of it. But what do you, what do you think about reparations? And uh, Richard Rothstein, The Color of Law, is one Absolutely. of the latest books on this. Um, I think reparations is more a realistic possibility than, than ever before. Democratic candidates who, who really said they wouldn't do it, like Bernie Sanders, are now finding out that they, they can't say that anymore. They have to say that they'll study it. And I think there's... The disaster of 2016 for the Democratic Party seems to have, well, it's a struggle within the Democratic Party, but it seems to have finally gotten some people in the party to admit that the heart and soul of the Democratic Party is African-Americans and that they have to be put into the position of leaders of the policy debate. It doesn't even have to necessarily be an African-American candidate making the claims, but, but whoever is the winning candidate has to fully represent some kind of black perspective or the whole thing will collapse. And reparations, I think, is the biggest one of all at the heart of it. It's truth and reconciliation in the United States can't happen without reparations. It's And reparations is common in the United States, like you pointed out. There's all sorts of the GI Bill, you know, as a form of reparations, of a form of affirmative action, of a form of welfare, for white soldiers who deserved welfare in many people's minds. So we're talking about people, if you think about what that word means, you know, welfare, uh, people who deserve to have their interests looked at seriously by the government 
and possibly assisted financially. Um, people were never paid for slavery. That moral uh, impetus is obvious. And um, also the wealth that racial slavery produced. I mean, Sven Becker in Empire of Cotton really gets deep into just the global financial um, wealth that was produced by racial slavery. And, and um, I think Beckert's work more than anybody's, along with Baptist, really shows you that racial slavery impacted both the North and South equally because there was a supply chain of wealth that was being built off of the labor, not just the labor, but also off of the bodies of, of African-American women, children, and men who were insured, um, who, 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 who represented collateral, represented economic leverage and power. I think the new studies on racial slavery are unbelievably sophisticated and nuanced and really have a lot of impact on the way in which at least I perceive the contemporary debate uh, because it's more than just about a salary. It's about what wealth was generated. And once wealth is generated, the only way you can really have some kind of equitable distribution is to think about um, large... Uh, structures, you know, I think a way in which we think about r repair and reparations, something like Medicare and Social Security are connected to that too. But it's 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 about a, rep a reparative aspect on just citizenship um, in in that case. But it's racialized because whites really enjoy Social Security and Medicare um, disproportionately. All right, my my final question, uh, Professor Ezra, is um, when you think about civil and human rights. Um, in the 21st century, how do you think we're going to be defining that in the 21st century? Black Lives Matter, March for Our Lives, immigration, LGBTQ, and how do you think scholars are going to be approaching those issues? Well, I think reparations is one that reparations is one that you could certainly talk about, but I actually think internationally is where scholars are going to draw their understanding of U.S. morality. So I think, like for example, the way America litigates or adjudicates Israel and Palestine is going to be a crucial way that the American people understand themselves as Americans, um, like the Iraq War, like 9-11, like World War II. So I think we're in that era where immigration, where foreign policy questions really wind up defining who we are as a people. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Michael Ezra, who is Professor of Multicultural American Studies at Sonoma State and also the, the editor of the Journal of Civil and Human Rights and editor of the Economic Civil Rights Movement, African Americans and the Struggle for Economic Power, and other books as well, author of other books. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H and our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.